You're now listening to Sanity at the Movies. That's right. We're on our way to the movie palace once again. Benjamin J. Solzer driving the old Sanity Mobile. That's right. <laughs> of course, Nathan Alverson, your humble and obedient host. We're joined by our car sick friend, Mr. Hi. Pastor Menzel. Yep. Jacob, how you doing today? Just get me to the theater, please. We can do that. That's what I'm doing. Now, just remember to take a right. That's debatable. House with the chickens. Uh, They should have laid out this town in a grid, man. But instead, it's slant town. It grew in its own special way. It really did. Speaking of things that grow in their own special ways, we are talking about a movie which the appreciation of grew in its own special way because it wasn't a big box office hit, but now it is considered one of the great movies, one of the best things, along with my brother John, Radiohead, Furby's Frosted Tips. This movie's got to be in one of the top one of the top 10 things to come out of the 90s. And the Movieville Palace, our listeners may not know, Sanityville Movie Palace plays vintage films on a on a weekday, and they're playing this one, so we thought we'd see it and we'd talk about it. It's great. Like fun. Jake, what's your favorite thing that came out of the 90s? <laughs> mine, <laughs> mine was The Matrix. <laughs> yeah, that's a good movie. Maybe we'll do that some. I think Jake's Tamagotchi was on the tip of Jake's tongue, no doubt. <laughs> now we're talking about the Shawshank Redemption. Send you here for life. That's exactly what they take. I believe in two things. Discipline. Help me, God! In the Bible. Here you'll receive both. Andy came to Shawshank Prison in 1947. Why'd you do it? I didn't, since you asked. (laughs) You're going to fit right in. Jake, what is the Shawshank Redemption about? It came out in 1995. What is the movie about, in case there's anyone that's been maybe locked away in prison for since the 90s and just got out and doesn't know what the Shawshank Redemption is. A man's put in prison for the murder of his wife and her lover, and that is one of the questions of the movie that is supposed to play in the background. Is he innocent? He maintains his innocence all the way through. Is he a man who is innocent and oppressed by the system? Is he a man who is guilty and who deserves everything that's coming to him? Is he going to be beaten down? Is he going to rise above it? We don't know. I'm going to give some a, a, a little bit of uh, history for this film. Shawshank Redemption is famous as being something of a dollar baby, kind of. Are you guys familiar with the concept of a dollar baby? Mm-mm. No. Concept of a dollar baby started in the year 1977, and that was the year that Mr. Stephen King, acclaimed horror author Stephen King, decided that he was going to help young filmmakers out by doing something called Dollar Babies. Any student filmmaker has the right to make a movie out of a Stephen King short story for the price of one dollar. It's a pretty cool thing. Apparently, it's caused his legal team no, no, <laughs> no end of no, trouble, no wow. end of headaches. But Stephen King's kind of a cool man of the people sort of guy like that. So he wanted to help student filmmakers out. He came up with this thing. He has them sign a little paper which says that they won't exhibit it commercially, but they can use it as a stepping stone and they can get these really cool, you know, imagine being able to adapt a really popular story by a really famous author. Now, a lot of sources that you read will tell you that the Shawshank Redemption began as the Dollar Baby and that Frank Darabont, the director and writer, in fact, paid Stephen King a dollar. That's not quite true, but Darabont did get his start when he wrote and directed a short adaptation of a Stephen King story called The Woman in the Room, which was one of the very first Dollar Babies and was actually a finalist for Academy Award consideration. So Darabont basically got his name on the map by doing one of these Stephen, these little Stephen King adaptations. And then King sold him the rights to Shawshank Redemption when he was still a pretty young filmmaker for a decent price. And he began because Steve, Stephen King does not necessarily sell his long form work for a dollar to anyone. What? <laughs> but anyway, Darabont gets the rights. People sort of think that the the story, it's, it's, it's almost a little novella. It's part of a collection of novellas in a collection called Different Seasons. It also contains the story The Body, which was adapted into a pretty beloved film called... Stand By Me. Stand By Me. And uh, the story Apt Pupil, which was adapted into a much less uh, beloved but still existing film called Apt Pupil, starring Ian McKellen and I want to say Tobey Maguire, maybe? I don't know. Someone who was young and hot at the time. And Ian McKellen played the, the, the evil bad guy in that one. And then there's a fourth story, I think, in that collection which has not been made into a famous movie. But at least two kind of seminal classics, Stand By Me and Shawshank Redemption, came out of this collection of stories. 
the story is kind of a weird story. I mean, you wouldn't necessarily, you look at the Shawshank Redemption, maybe it seems obvious now because it's such a nice story, but it's a long story. It's a prison story. There's no women in the story. It's got some sort of semi-fantastical conceits that you have to swallow. There's a lot of things about it that don't necessarily make it something that a Hollywood producer would be looking or be excited about, but they're about, about adapted it into a really, really good screenplay that was the talk of the town. Rob Reiner's company, Rob Reiner's the guy that did Stand By Me as well as being famous for many other things. Rob Reiner got the rights to it uh, with, and he wanted to do it famously with Tom Cruise and Harrison Ford, which is just kind of fun to think about star casting versus what we got, which is, I would say, appropriate and good casting. I think I read that Clint Eastwood was also... Uh... Yeah, yeah. Well, it was one of those properties that everyone... It was a good screenplay, and everyone was kind of circling it. Another one from the same era that's pretty famous is Silence of the Lambs. And the story I always like to recount about that one is that Morgan Freeman really wanted the part of Hannibal Lecter, and he felt like he wouldn't be considered for it because, of course, he's a black man, and nobody wanted to cast a black man as a cannibalistic serial killer. And so he f- thought that because of political correctness, he was denied the ability to play the, coveted, the coveted part uh, in Hollywood that year. Darabont held out to actually be the director and to cast Shawshank the way he wanted to cast it. And he did in a, one of the happy stories that happens from time to time every once in a while in Hollywood, get the rights to do it his way as a young filmmaker. He's kind of, I would say, he's of the generation right after Spielberg. And so you have Spielberg and Lucas, and they're called the movie brats. Francis Ford Coppola would be another one. Brian De Palma. They're these guys that sort of were the first post-movie generation, you know, they had grown up with the your Casablancas and your Frankenstein. They'd grown up seeped in classic cinema and now they're making movies like Raiders of the Lost Ark or Star Wars, which are basically just taking classic cinema and regurgitating it in another form. It's in some some way you could say it's the first postmodern, but it's, so they did this, but then you got a class of directors that came a generation after them, Darabont is looking at this landscape that's changed with big blockbusters and things like what Spielberg and Lucas did. And he wrote Nightmare on Elm Street 3, The Dream Warriors. But then he kind of went in a weird direction because... Because uh, that wasn't weird. Yeah, that was... (laughs) But that direction made sense because it's a super popular sequel to a super popular franchise movie that teenagers are going to go watch, whether it's crap or... You know, there's no reason not to do that if you're a young filmmaker. Maybe there's a moral reason, but commercially it makes sense. Shawshank makes no sense commercially if if that's the movie that you decide to make your mark with it's just kind of a weird choice i think if if you think about spielberg and lucas and you think about them as looking back to the old pulp classics and pulp movies and they're taking those and the space opera and stuff and they're reforming it for a new generation what i think darabont decided to do was something equally smart which was to take frank capra and those kinds of things your mr smith goes to washington your socially conscious everyman fables and redo those for a new generation that's how i see and i suppose we'll maybe we'll talk about this more but that's really the lineage that i see at least shawshank being in, and also the green mile also the majestic uh not so much the Mist or The Walking Dead, which are the other things that Darabont's famous for. Uh, he hasn't been super prolific. He's apparently not an easy guy to work with. I don't know, really know what else we need to know about him. The interesting things to know about the Shawshank Redemption, fun trivia about the movie. The short story is, of course, called Rita Hayworth and the Shawshank Redemption because the poster hanging on Andy Dufresne's wall is of Rita Hayworth. When the script was being shopped around in Hollywood, Darabont and his agents got a lot of phone calls from agents that were representing hot young actresses at the time saying, this is the best screenplay we've ever read about Rita Hay- Hayworth and our, my client really wants the opportunity to do this great script about, about Rita and play Rita Hayworth. A lot of people thought it was a Rita Hayworth biopic. But yeah, Darabont held out. He did it his way. He cast it with Tim Robbins and Morgan and Morgan Freeman, who are actors that were known at the time. I don't know that either one of them, they had done some stage work. They had done movies. Morgan Freeman had done Driving Miss Daisy. They weren't unknowns. It wasn't, he wasn't, it wasn't like he was just cast, you know, having people audition from nowhere. But he cast it with the guys that were right for the roles and had them. Wouldn't Tim, Tim Robbins would have played in probably Top Gun and Bull Durham at least. Yeah, he would have done Top, so yeah, like I said, they're not unknown. 
Jones, uh, Freeman would have had Driving Miss Daisy and Glory. Tim Robbins would have had Top Gun and Bull Durham by this time. So they're good workmanlike actors that people knew. I guess you could call them character actors. I don't think either one of them would have really been considered a star, but people would have known who they were. Morgan Freeman would have been less well-known then than he is now, but certainly he was a known commodity. Well, he's ubiquitous now. Yeah, and he's ubiquitous now. And I think, obvious, this probably goes, this is probably just so, so silly that it goes without saying, but Shawshank Redemption did set the template for what Morgan Freeman does. Wise, genial, voiceover narration. I mean, all the things that we kind of laugh about. Oh, that's Morgan Freeman, you know, he's narrating again. Well, that's what the Shawshank Redemption introduced him. Sort of set him up for. Right. Movies famously a box office disappointment, only earned $16 million during its theatrical run. It was competing with some very exciting movies. Again, not at one I'd necessarily recommend taking watching, but it was definitely sweeping the world at the time, Pulp Fiction. Also, a movie that everybody loves, Forrest Gump. So those were the big movies that were competing for attention and for awards and for all that kind of stuff. Even so, uh, Shawshank Redemption did get nominated for seven Academy Awards. Eventually, it did make some good money, mostly through VHS, where it became actually a big hit. And it's one of the first times, actually, that Hollywood realized the power of, what's the word, of of home media, of something besides theatrical run, because it wasn't a big hit theatrically, but it was a big hit. It actually had a life and made a lot of money and became ubiquitous on, like, TBS, I think, would show it all the time. That's what I remember seeing it a lot on TV as a kid. So it just, it was the top rental of 1995, so it really is just one of those word-of-mouth kind of movies, and most people that have discovered it had the pleasure of not being told by a media campaign but being told the princess bride was like this as a kid i remember you know everybody had that opportunity to just discover the princess bride and everybody kind of felt like it was theirs and shawshank redemption very similar both of those movies may have lost that now because they're considered to be such stone cold classics that you sort of watch them out of obligation as opposed Mm -hmm. to you don't feel that special ownership secret anymore i kind of feel the same way about my generation really discovered the christmas story with as something special but now it's ubiquitous and you're supposed to like it and it's kind of lost that special magic magic just like a generation before it replaced it's a wonderful life which people had discovered and made their own and then it's a wonderful life became ubiquitous so classic uh, example of box office failure right there yep exactly so so uh, yeah it's, i think this movie has a lot of parallels with this wonderful life that's certainly what i would argue maybe we'll talk a bit more about that maybe we won't hey ben that's the theater you just went past it what no yeah all right, guys, we're in the concessions line. Once again, Jake needs his Swedish fish. Every time. Guys, why are we watching the Shawshank Redemption besides the fact that the palace is playing it? Uh, why did we decide this would be a movie that would be worthy of sanity at the movies? Because it's something that everybody loves and everybody has seen, except for me. Yeah, yeah, it's same, same for me. Neither one of you guys have seen the movie? Before? Well, I, I saw almost all of it. I don't think I've ever watched it straight through. Never seen it. It's one of those movies that I've missed. My wife loves it. She thinks it's great. She thinks I'll love it. She's excited that we're watching it. Cool. That's nice. Absolutely confident I'm going to love it. Uh, I grew up with it. I remember having the exact experience that one I suppose is supposed to have had with it, which is that sometime in the mid-90s after it became a thing, uh, we heard about it through word of mouth, and my parents rented it from Blockbuster Video. Kids don't remember. That was a video rental place where you could get videos. We got ourselves a copy of Shawshank Redemption. I remember watching it as uh, maybe an early teen or a kid. I don't know how old I would have been when I first saw it, but I remember... um, really being drawn in and it, and, and, and it being kind of weird because it was, it didn't have anything that would be interesting, you know, it didn't have explosions it didn't have Indiana Jones, it didn't have people running or getting melted or anything like that, the kinds of stuff that I liked at the time it was a slow movie, it was kind of an adult movie, I thought it was going to be boring and then I remember just uh, absorbing is the word that I would say, I mean it was just one of those movies that just through its slowness almost, the slowness in the, it's one of those movies where the slowness is a virtue because it just lulls you in and you get on the movie's rhythms and I just remember it being a powerful experience so I've seen it a lot I've watched it a lot on TV since then and I like it it's probably one of my favorite movies I don't know mm, cool I saw bits of it on TV growing up I remember my parents liked it a lot I don't know why I never saw the whole thing but I remember liking it and just kind of forgetting about it 
Yeah, I hadn't really thought about it until the Palace was going to play it. I, I hadn't actually, me and Jake were going through some an AFI list or something like that and yeah. uh, just looking at movies and I hadn't really, it's one of those movies that when people ask me to name my favorite movie, it doesn't necessarily occur to me. It's not something I think of. I was at Target the other day and I was in the video section of Target and I was in the drama section and you know how they have the little, you know, there's a little thing at the top of the aisle that says drama. That thing had a picture of Tim Robbins and Morgan Freeman on it. Like Target just wants to communicate, this is a drama, this is the drama section and here are the videos Here's that the kind you of and your family you might want to buy. is something along the lines of Shawshank Redemption. Exactly. Which of course so, you know. Yeah, so it's, it's certainly iconic enough for Target to just use it as like shorthand, visual shorthand for a section of their video, their little videos. All right, Mr. Mensel, here's your industrial sized bag of Swedish fish. It took a long time for you to fill that bag up or... Anyway, that'll be, uh, let me see, what do we charge here per box? That's 35 boxes in this bag. All right, it'll be $165 there. No problem, Holly. <laughs> All right. This is a great day for the palace, I tell you. All right, so while we're watching the movie, we're going to play a new segment for the show, for Sanity at the Movies. And this is actually a tape that the First Church of Sanityville sent over. Jake, you know how they're launching? They're trying to get into multimedia. Yeah, they're launching their... Their uh, multimedia ministry, their yeah, podcast network. I don't, know, huh. I don't know where they got that All idea. Right. It's called Q and A at the movies, I think. So I thought we'd give it a. I thought we'd give it a chance. Uh, okay. Welcome, listeners, to another episode of the Q and A movie podcast with me, your host Benjamin Q. Solster, and, and me, Andy Jukeman, Andy Powell. <laughs> Did I say it was time for you to talk? Boy, I'm sorry, Mr. Q. Solster. That's, just... that's okay, Andy. You made a horrible mistake, <laughs> but it was the sort of thing that could happen to anyone who makes horrible mistakes. Now, for folks who don't know Andy, he's a good kid from the First Church of Sanityville, and I've sort of taken him under my wing. Mr. Q. Solster said I could be on his movie review show. That's right, Andy. I did say you could watch me record my show. <laughs> After years of being Jake and Nathan's podcast protégé, now I am the protégé. This is so cool. Now, Andy, we've been having a lot of fun, but remember what I told you the golden rule for great podcasting was? Silence. That's absolutely right. So, you just keep the old lips zipped. When are we going to announce today's movie? Well, I was just about to make that very special. It's such a cool classic movie. It's the one about the redemptive prison break where, oh, um, oh no, what's it called? Uh, Andy, uh, Andy, come on, come on. Looks like somebody needs to have a prison break out of his lousy short-term memory. Oh boy, oh boy. I've really failed. I did it again. I'm so stupid. I'm sorry, Mr. Q. Solcer. It's like that thing my mom always says to me after she tells me how much she loves me. She says, I'm not your mom. I'm a sock puppet. Oh, that's not creepy at all. Anyway, Andy, you can't let people keep treating you like a child. Now, how about let's play the quiet game? I can do that, Mr. Q. Salser. Anything for... Oh, Andy, you've already messed it up again, you stupid idiot. You messed it up. You can't stop. He said stop. Sock Mom's going to be so mad. Oh, ah. Okay, okay. It's okay. It's okay, buddy. It's okay. I remember the movie. It's the one about redemption in Shawshank Prison. I think it's called Prison Sadness. That's or, right. Or That's right. It's, like it's the that. Shawshank Redemption. And, and there are so many redemptive themes, such as... Where Tim one... Robbins goes from life to death. Well, that certainly... Even though I... he has to crawl through a tunnel of slime to get there. Uh, right. And if we and the tunnel of slime for... is like our sin. Well, I guess that's right. And the warden and then... is like a hypocrite. And hypocrites always destroy themselves in the end. Don't they, Mr. Q. Solcer? <laughs> well, Two. great, great, great job. And the now, other why prisoners we... are like reflections of our... All right, and we're back. Sorry for that little technical difficulty there, folks. <laughs> I had to put my good friend and fellow podcaster Andy Jukeman into, let's say, solitary confinement for a moment <laughs> because he was hogging the show. No, 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 I'm just kidding with you. I'm just getting just a little prison humor for you, right? I would never put Andy into the hole. We had a technical glitch with my microphone, and 15 minutes later, I'm back on again. Andy had to get on home. So, <clears throat> bottom line, The Shawshank Redemption is a very important movie for Christians to see. One in which plumb line of total... Oh, boy. It's dark in the blue Uh... I want to go Whoa, it's sad. Andy, Andy, 
he's still here. My goodness, listeners, it's like a parable of imprisonment and redemption happening right here in the studio. It's like there's the... Okay, okay, don't worry, Andy. I'm coming, I'm coming. Here, come on out of there. Come on out of there. Come on into the light of the evening sun as it streams in through the window. Why'd you lock me in there, Mr. I, I didn't, I didn't honest. I told you to quietly find the extra microphone cable in the broom closet, and then when I turned around again, the door was closed. But I didn't close the door. I propped it open. Oh, I'm sure you did, buddy. Anyway, I'm so glad you are still here. You are? It's like a parable of reunion. It's like uh, that beach in Mexico at the end of the Shawshank Redemption. That's really beautiful, Mr. Q. Sulcer. Uh, which one of us is Morgan Freeman? <laughs> okay. Oh, that is not a very racially sensitive question, Andy. But let's face it, it's me. Anyway, no worries. We're out of time. So this is Benjamin Q. Sulcer. And, and Andy Jukeman. And I was going to say that. <laughs> We are wishing you happy viewing with your redemptive eyes. Until the next Q&A. Stay sane. No. Uh, stay alert. No. High alert. No. Alert the guards. Nope. Guardians of Gahul? Uh, yeah, Andy, that's right. Our catchphrase is Guardians of Gahul. It is? No. What now? <laughs> Back in the broom closet we go. Hey everybody, we're in the parking lot. We just got done watching The Shawshank Redemption. What a great movie. That's my takeaway. Jake, this is your first time seeing the film. What are your immediate thoughts having walked out of the theater? It's pretty great. Pretty great? Yeah. Everything you dreamed and more? I didn't really know what I was in for exactly. So, but yeah, it was it was great. It was really nice. It was fun. It was Redemptive. Redemptive, yeah. This is the first movie. We didn't have a Popcorn Coalition segment. This is the first movie where them talking about redemptivores and all that kind of stuff might have I can't believe we got snookered, by the way, into having Benjamin Q. Sulcer on our show again. Oh, is that what that segment was? I haven't actually listened to it yet. Oh, no. You're kidding me. Surely he learned a lesson from the last (laughs) time he appeared on our program. This feels like more of an off-mic conversation, guys. So um, let's... Ben, your immediate thoughts upon finally seeing Shawshank Redemption all the way through for the first time. I liked it a lot. Yeah. Well, what, let's say we hit up, uh, you want to go to Dinky's Dar- Diner, or is this more of a Hrothgar's Hall kind of night? What are you guys feeling? Uh, let's go to Hrothgar's Hall. Yeah, let's go to Hrothgar's Hall. That sounds good. Uh, okay. <laughs> ben doesn't want to go to Hrothgar's <laughs> I, I want a malt, not, a, not the kind of malt that's in a beer, but whatever. It's fine. All right, here we are at Hrothgar's Hall. Oh, hi, Mr. J. Solzer. Here's your uh, malt. <laughs> One large chocolate malt. Oh, uh, I didn't think you served ice cream at Rothgar's Hall, Ollie. Just, you know, hard liquor for men who want to get drunk fast, or maybe that's a line from a movie or something that we'll talk about someday. But thanks, I guess. How did you do that? Oh, I just saw you guys driving away from the theater. You weren't going towards Stinkies. I have a shift here. My car's faster than your car. I have a little ice cream in the freezer. You know, one thing leads to another. Here you uh, are. Thanks. What do I owe you? Uh, it's, it's all in the house. Maybe I overcharged Pastor Mensal just a little bit for that industrial-sized bucket of sweetest fish. Maybe not. <laughs> so you're gonna I'm not cut, sure. So you're going to cut Ben a break instead <laughs> of me. Well, I figure you guys are like three peas in a pod or whatever, and you probably share a common wallet for <laughs> official company purposes and stuff, right? So anyway. Guys, let's go right into death matches, huh? We got six yeah. rounds of death match. This is what we do in our movie episodes. We do this versus that. We randomly assign the topics and the points of view that the people have to represent and then we have 60 seconds and i will as be the very impartial judge will decide who wins we're going to do six of those today all right guys first death match we are going to d- decide what redemption happened in shawshank the movie is obviously called the shawshank redemption but who got redeemed was it tim robbins character andy dufresne or was it red Played by Morgan Freeman, who was the one that got redeemed. Ben, I'm going to have you argue for Tim Robbins. All right. Jake, I'm going to have you argue for Morgan Freeman. And we will have Ben go first. Are you ready, Ben? I'm ready. All right. On your mark, get set, go. Whoa, okay. So Tim Robbins is the main character. The movie starts out with him on trial for the murder of his wife and her lover. He gets put into prison, and then he finds a way out of prison. I mean, he gets like redeemed so it's pretty simple he goes into prison he gets out of prison i don't even know what to say listener uh he 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 he, he also uh well, it's true he also redeems other people oh no i'm giving jake parts and points for his argument um that's all that's all i have to say that's it <laughs> you, you managed to in just 35 seconds make 
a fairly unconvincing argument. Yes, <laughs> I knew I could. <laughs> <laughs> we, we, we all had that belief. <laughs> to be fair, it was a setup for failure. Well, that's what you're about to argue, Jake. That's on what your I'm mark. about to prove. Get set, go. First of all, against Dufresne being the character who's redeemed, uh, he undergoes no fundamental transformation unless that transformation is one of being corrupted. But he always maintains hope the whole way through. What does change is Morgan Freeman starts as the cynical, I'm here, I'm just going to work the system in jail, I have no hope of getting out. I have no hope that anybody's going to let me out, I have no hope I'm going to get off, I'm just going to work the system. And through his interactions with Andy Dufresne, becomes a man who is hopeful and who then is changed, transformed, redeemed, and uh, who gets out and uh, lives happily ever after. So there is the short 30 second. I just took down Ben's point. Yep, you did it in 45 seconds. Let's stop the clock. I'm with Jake on this one. We could try really hard to argue this, but I don't know that. Well, the fascinating thing that I think is about the, the really one of the things that makes the movie so entertaining and absorbing and clever is that the first time you watch it, you're really you not sure about You don't actually know that Andy... Yeah, exactly. That's true, right. And you're sort of programmed to think the movie is going to be about Andy's redemption. So you're waiting for his moment of despair. You don't know whether, you know... Yeah, but the seeds are all there just the same all the way through that it's actually about Morgan Freeman. He's the one that opens the film. Watching it again, it's like it's obvious. Oh, yeah, this is Morgan Freeman's story, really, as much as anything. But it's interesting how your perceptions of Andy change through the movie. And maybe, like, halfway through, you're like, is this just the story of this Andy Dufresne guy who's just... You know, He's getting broken by the system, and yeah. every every chance he has to find hope or make a turn, he gets beaten down a little bit more, and it's going to end up with him killing himself. Is that the way that this is going? Or is he just a beautiful idiot savant that can take any amount of abuse and remain... Sort of rise above it. Rise above it. above it. Yeah. And it turns out he's a little bit more clever than that. Maybe he has some aspects of that. Sophisticated bit of story work, actually, the way the screenplay portrays him. And that is the big argument for mm-hmm. why you get Tim Robbins instead of Tom Cruise... Which we'll come to later, Which I think we're going to come to in a little bit. Let's talk about the Christianity in the movie. This is one of the big moral issues in the movie because the warden is obviously portrayed as a Bible-thumping Southern Christian kind of a guy, and he's not a very nice man. Warden uh, Norton, is that his name? No, Warden Norton. So we're going to just ask the question straight up. Is the movie anti-Christian? Ben, I'm going to have you argue that the movie is not anti-Christian. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I like to set you up for Man, yeah. Jake, I'm going to have you argue that the movie... Serving me up today. I'm going to have you argue that the movie is anti-Christian. I'm going to have you go first, Jake, just to maybe give Ben a little bit of time because I do feel some pity for him here. Although maybe he'll do a good job. We'll see. How's that for a vote of confidence? On your mark, get set, go. Okay, the warden is in fact portrayed as a Christian who is evil and the main villain of the entire story and who throws his Bible in your face and then takes advantage of you and is corrupt and hypocritical in every way possible, arranges the murder and covers up the murder of inmates, makes sure that Andy Dufresne stays in prison for a crime he knows that he didn't commit by arranging a murder to cover it up so that he can uh, keep his racket going and gives us a redemptive story that flies in the face of the Christians and works in spite of the Christians as they're portrayed in the film. In every way, it's made, it's meant to portray Christians as evil and hypocritical, and the guys that are uh, our protagonists are just ordinary Joes who need a little bit of redemption and a little bit of help and a little bit of mercy and a little bit of hope that no Christian is willing to hold out to them. Time. Pretty convincing. Pretty convincing. All right, yeah. Ben. On your mark, get set, go. All right. Well, even though the movie, like Jake says, sets Christians up, it sets them up as a straw man. Um, in other words, just a just a religion of pure hypocrisy. However, what it what it actually ends up doing is playing using Christian themes of sin and judgment and redemption in a way that's very that is like effectively Christian, much more so than most Christians who try to make movies about this kind of thing. If I guess if you do, so. What happens, uh, for instance, to Warren Norton is that that little uh, cross-stitched thing, framed scripture he has on the wall, his his judgment cometh, and that right soon, you know, the camera zooms in on the night of Andy's escape, and you realize, wait, it's the irony, you know, uh, uh, his Christianity is actually coming true for him. And so Warren Norton's Christianity does come true in an honest way, and 
judgment does come upon him. Andy does get an actual redemption instead of a fake one. Other people, like uh, the rapist Boggs and the brutal Captain Hadley, also gets what get what's coming to them in a kind of an old testament sort of way which mm. is which is how the how the how the judgment in the movie plays out and so it successfully feels like a bunch of biblical themes Time. have been it successfully feels like poetic justice and cosmic karma flying in the face and coming into crush hypocritical Christians. Thinking That's of right. Cosmic Karma, I gave Ben 26 extra seconds because I wanted to hear where he was going to go with that. It's a noble effort, Ben. I suppose the Popcorn Coalition, if they were here, would agree with... <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> That's no good. <laughs> the movie does inevitably reflect themes of judgment and redemption and things that are resonant for Christians because God made the world in a certain way. That does not mean it's a pro-Christian movie. I would think that it, would, it is actually kind of just one of those typically anti-christian movies in its way i'm not saying don't watch it i'm just saying the warden is a christian stereotype that's all too common in hollywood films unfortunately uh and stephen king is very famous for writing christians this way sometimes he'll give us like a mystical christian quote unquote that's bigger and more progressive and better than any Christian would ever be in his eyes. But mostly Christians are portrayed as hypocrites. Uh, Stephen King, like when he was 12 years old, knocked on someone's door selling something or door to door or something like that and had a religious woman tell him how he was a sinner, how he was going to hell in a really nasty, scary way that really stuck with him as a kid. And he's all, always held it against us. He uh, sees Christians as hypocrites and Reverend Warden Norton. I don't know how much of that's in the original short story, but it's very much the kind of thing that Stephen Stephen King would do and has done many times. Mm-hmm. Carrie's mom is famously a religious fanatic that abuses Carrie because she doesn't think that Carrie should have her witch-like powers. And yeah, I'm ruling yep. against you, Ben. Ah, I set you up to fail and I punished you, you for it. All right, guys, let's do. Is the opera scene credible? Is the opera scene? So there's this scene. Describe the opera scene to us, Ben. Uh, in the opera scene, Andy goes through a box of records, pulls out duet from... Mozart's opera Marriage of Figaro and plays it on the prison PA system. He, he locks the door of the warden's office so they can't get in for a while to stop him and all the inmates in the yard look up with expressions of wonder, kind of? That's a little too far. Anyway, they all look up, they freeze in their tracks and they just listen to the music while it plays. You can tell that everyone's heart is stirred within him. That's the opera scene. Right, and there are them that have argued that that scene is sort of corny and unbelievable, that prisoners would never do that. There are others that have argued that the scene is beautiful and one of the best from the movie. And so I'm going to assign, and we're doing some of these randomly, by the way, folks. We may or may not have flipped coins and things like that. I'm going to assign Nathan the job of saying is the op- that the opera scene is not credible. I'm going to assign Jake the job of saying that the opera scene is credible. On your mark, get set, go, Jake. Uh, you've got a high-security prison full of people who have not heard music or been allowed to have or enjoy anything that makes them feel human, many of them for 15, 20, 30, 40-plus years. And suddenly, while they're standing around doing nothing, feeling as inhuman as possible, you have Mozart come on on the PA. And they don't have to understand classical music or love it uh, to just be stunned and stop and take in a few moments of beautiful art that makes them feel human. And so that's the way it happens. That's the way it plays. And the the way it's it's told it's sophisticated enough that afterwards the guy you know there there's like the guy that comes to andy and says what you couldn't have found hank williams right so there's that also that sense of like okay yeah we don't get classical music why'd you do that but also the appreciation just i think that they do a good job of both you know giving you that sense of okay stop here's something that reminds us that we're human and here's something beautiful there's no beauty everything in the movie is gray everything is gray Mm -hmm. here's something beautiful and human and fresh while still sort of having that yeah i don't but we didn't understand anything that italian woman said and right couldn't it have been hank williams you know among some of the inmates that helped maintain the credibility of that scene i will argue against that starting 
now. I think personally, I actually do think this. I think the scene is very corny and doesn't work and I don't like it. I think the movie is so careful in the way that it parcels out its big humor, its big drama and the way that it builds and saves all the emotion until almost the very end. And that scene just rings incredibly false and feels like a betrayal of that to me, actually. I don't buy that a bunch of hardened criminals would be all that excited about hearing opera. I mean, you play Hank Williams, sure. I think all those guys will have something to relate to and they'll think, oh, this reminds me of what it was like. But I don't buy that any of those guys are going to care about some fruity opera singer. I mean, they probably all look down on that kind of stuff. Maybe you could give Red that moment and nobody else, but to have everybody stop in their tracks and look up just feels like a screenwriter's conceit and like something that the would never happen. music lover's conceit. Yeah. I defy you to imagine that happening in any real prison or in any real situation like that that you've ever been in or known of or seen, and my time is up. The counter to that would be that in uh, modern prison systems, you have music and TV, such like things. Yeah, I mean, it feels like so. Such okay, like the whole here's as. here's here's what I think Jake's argument. Here's Jake's real argument. I think is that the movie basically operates on the label level of fable. Almost nothing that happens in the movie is strictly realistic. Although the movie does indulge in some pretty realistically icky things about pr- prison life early on. But then with the taxes, with the way that Andy escapes, with m- most of it is almost, and some of the delight of it is that it turns out to be almost a tall tale. And so to have this this element that's explicitly tall tale-ish you could argue in that framework works for me it's one step over the line of I, everything else within the movie crafts carefully and i can kind of buy it as being true to that world but that moment goes too far i think teach his own i'm just gonna stand by the opinion that i was assigned <laughs> ben your thoughts oh yeah i think it works because in a context where no one gets any kind of music or anything it's not a media saturated world and everyone has given up hope mm-hmm. it's part of the fable then you have a music that represents hope like a like a symbol everyone listens i think it works fine yeah it just feels like, like roger ebert criticized the shot in casablanca where it zooms in on humphrey bogart and he takes a drag of his cigarette and says maybe it's time we let destiny take a hand or something he just said that one moment doesn't feel like rick blaine said it because he thought it was something he should say it feels like the filmmakers wanted to have a moment that was cool before they cut to their climax or whatever that's a similar problem for me with the shawshank that <laughs> it just feels like a movie moment and they don't to me successfully ever quite overcome that uh-huh. for a movie that is basically full of movie moments that really when you think too hard about them don't make that much sense but they they carry the day for most of the movie You're right and that moment is just too much too much why would these prisoners be excited about opera they wouldn't they just wouldn't you know yeah i think actually my favorite thing about that scene is that tim robbins locks himself inside and just chooses that moment to dig his heels in in a really obvious way yeah it's a nice i like that it's a nice stick it to the man kind of one flew over the cuckoo nest kind of a moment but i don't know the movie didn't need another one of those it's got enough of them as it is yeah take it out director's cut take it out take it you guys aren't joining my chance nope nah worst villain this is going to be a three-part you mean i'm sorry do you mean best villain or most effective villain villain. there we go the villain that you think is the most villainous ben i'm gonna have you argue for the sisters these these were all assigned by chance i'm gonna have you argue for the sisters gross got it jake i'm gonna have you argue for the warden keep serving me softballs man and i am going to argue for captain hadley all right (laughs) so why don't we go can i go last this time you and jake first a lot uh, no. Yeah, we'll do. We'll do. I'll go first. How about? Okay. All right. Here we go. Captain Hadley. He's a jerk. He shoots that guy. He works with the warden. He uh, is a big jerk. He kills that fat guy. I mean, he's just not a nice guard. And I don't think we really know what he stands to gain by it. Like the warden is just greedy. The sisters are. We all know what they are. But the this guard guy just seems to be some kind of a psychotic sadist. Sadist. So, I mean, to me, he's kind of the most, in in a sense, there's no human reason for him to want to do what he wants to do besides just pure malice. So that is why, in some sense, even though the things he does, we could argue about which things, which people do that are the worst, but I'm going to say this guy's motivations are the most banally sort of psychotic and terrible, and he's scary, and it's really satisfying to hear that he cried when they took him away. So in Captain Hadley's face, that is my time. That's your time. Ben, I'm going to have you argue for the sisters. On your mark, get set, go. Well, the sisters are, yeah, 
they uh, beat and rape other prisoners, and um, that's disgusting and dehumanizing. That's at the it's at the bottom of the scale of sins in, in Romans 1. Um, it's when God gives you over to degraded passions. And so they represent the most degraded side of men. They're, they're more like animals, like Red even says at one point, oh, they'd have to be human beings to qualify as evil. I forget what he says exactly, but anyway, they're, they're incredibly de- degrading. They degrade other mans. They exist in animal passions. They're, they're predators within the system. Um, and even though Captain Hadley and Captain Warden enable them in a sense by letting them go and by creating the atmosphere, they've still chosen to degrade themselves to a level that even Warden Norton doesn't get to. That's why they're the worst. Hey, did it with 10 seconds to spare. All right, Jake. Two pretty convincing arguments to contend with there. You think you can do it? I think so. Against the one person that does not rape or murder anyone is who you're arguing for here. So one, two, three, go. Uh, Warden Norton actually does is responsible for the rape and murder of everyone. He creates the environment. He hires the guard. He allows things to happen. He insists that they happen. He asks that they happen. All for his own selfish gain. All for his own corrupt purposes while maintaining a hypocritical veneer of Christianity. So uh, the captain is there because that's his man. He beats the guys and and kills the guys that the warden wants killed. And he maintains the kind of order that the warden wants. The sisters are there and they're allowed to do what they do because it serves the warden's purposes and because justice does not serve the warden's purposes. He uses everyone to his own gain, everyone in every way possible. All of the wickedness that happens in Shawshank happens because of him and is traced back to him while he does it as a supposed Christian man. He is the worst of the worst. All right. You did it just in time. The verdict is the system. The real villain was the system, guys. Oh, man. I knew it. They were all victims of the system. Even <laughs> Warden Norton. Even Warden Norton. <laughs> poor, poor Warden Norton. I don't know. I think we all made pretty good arguments, actually. Yeah. So I'll go sign points to everybody. Yay. Yay. <laughs> I, I think, I actually, I think Jake wins because God always assigns the most blame to those who have the most knowledge. Yes, I think Jake does win. The most responsibility, win. so. I think I made a pretty good argument for Captain Hadley, though. No, that was, that was better that was than I thought you could do. the best argument you could make for Captain yeah. Hadley. And Ben made a good argument for the sisters, but I wasn't as shocked by that because the sisters are pretty bad. Um, yeah, pretty obvious what argument to make there. All right, we've got two more of these got to get through, guys. Tom Cruise and Harrison Ford. Is the move does the movie work if you if you cast Tom Cruise as they wanted to? Tom Cruise is Andy, Harrison Ford is Red. We said we'd discuss it. We're going to discuss it now. I will have myself argue that it does not work. I will have Jake argue that it does. I'll go ahead and go first. One, two, three, go, Nathan. I don't think the movie works because I think Tom Cruise, if you think about his track record then and now, but especially then, you think about Top Gun, you think about Cocktail, you think about Days of Thunder, you think about all the firm. I don't know whether that came first or after off the top of my head, probably after now that I think of it, but Tom Cruise plays young men that rise above adversity, that are cool, that the system puts down, that learn and grow and then do something awesome and prove themselves. You cast Tom Cruise as Andy, everybody knows that he's going to do exactly what Andy does. No one is surprised by Andy overcoming the odds. No one seriously seriously thinks Andy might commit suicide or give up hope or be defeated or crushed by the system. There's no suspense. It's a bad movie. Harrison Ford, maybe not as bad as Red, but still, you always know Harrison Ford's got a heart of gold beneath his gruff exterior. So it takes away some of the suspense there too and just makes for a basically ineffective movie. Stunt cast or star casting, not, uh, I'm out of time, but I will say one more sentence, which is that star casting is often not as effective as good casting. So, Jake, you, you can argue about that, or you can argue against that starting now. Harrison Ford and Tom Cruise are pretty awesome in their own right, and it is, in fact, a story of a man who's beaten down by the system and rises above it, and I think they would have done just fine. They're great actors. They would have gotten a lot more uh, at the box office at this time than uh, Robinson and uh, Freeman did, and it would have been a perfectly serviceable movie. Maybe not as great. Maybe I'll give you that, you know, 
Tim Robbins' ability to play it sort of close to the chest adds a little bit of je ne sais quoi to the film. But I think I think Ford could totally pull off what Freeman. Freeman's never, you know, you said a heart of gold beneath the gruff exterior. There's no gruff exterior to Freeman in this movie. He's always a good guy. He's always a nice guy. He's a little cynical, but he's 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 a good guy from the very beginning. And Harrison Ford would do just fine with that. Tom Cruise would be fun. He'd be fun to watch. It'd be interesting to see him play this character. And I think he could even sell that he was uh, driving towards suicide towards the end instead of redemption. And Time. it could be cathartic. Yeah, I know what you mean. The movie would probably be fine, I guess. But I don't. I think the movie would lack a lot of power if it was. I, you would honestly never think that Tom Cruise was going to do anything but what he does and 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 when uh, he was if if he did pull off the suicide moment at the end it would be because he was acting and he was acting and you'd be like oh there's tom cruise giving a great performance instead of just thinking there's andy dufresne i wonder what's going to happen to andy which is what a much less well-known actor like tim robbins lets lets you do well the other thing it does tom cruise ever allow himself to be the victim of prison rape yeah i don't know uh-huh. It's off. That's the mo- that's more off brand to me than anything. Hmm. He might do it for an Oscar, and he might also do a suicide scene for an Oscar. Right, and he'd probably do well at both. Tom Cruise doesn't do poorly when Tom Cruise decides he's going to do something. I just think his stardom, his looks, his everything about him, his career trajectory works against him. It makes it hard for you to feel like he's really the victim, yeah, or a plausible victim. But Tim Robbins is easily a plausible victim. Yeah. So you're on your team, Nathan. Yeah, well, I'm team Tim. Nathan. Tim Robbins has resting hangdog face. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> he does. Yeah. And he plays into that really beautifully in this movie. I think yeah. is, this is just Tim Robbins was born for this movie. I oftentimes don't like Tim Robbins and things, mm-hmm. but he is perfect for this movie. He plays it exactly close enough to the vest and farther enough from the vest. And I don't know. It's it's a good performance. Yeah. And I don't know whether it's that's... It's just a different movie. Yeah. Yeah. An inferior one in my book. Yeah. Ford, but Ford and Freeman is a less... Yes. A less I'll, give you, I'll give you Ford and Freeman. Um, I mean, I think Freeman is better at sadness, <clears throat> probably... Vulnerability. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <clears throat> but, but Ford can do some pretty decent, I'm discouraged and I've given up kind of work. Yeah, it might be like, we might be talking about how it was a career best moment for Ford if he was in the movie. I'm not saying we wouldn't, but huh. I don't think we'd be talking about it as a career best for Tom Cruise necessarily. No way. Uh, all right, final question. Was it godly for Andy to do what he done? Jake, I'll have you say yes. Nathan, I'll have you say no. I have to argue. This was These were the coins, baby. We flipped... I have to argue that it was godly for Andy to do it. So the whole thing. The The whole movie, Andy's whole plan, his working for the warden, the way he escaped, the way he set the warden up to die uh, or to take a fall, everything that Andy did was good. Okay, just give me me a second to gather my thoughts here. You want me to go first and argue that against it? Yeah, would you go? This is going to take a... Okay, I'll just make my argument. It's take a little bit of ingenuity. Okay, well, we'll see. Um, I have tr- I have faith in you. One, two, three, go, Nathan. Obviously, this movie is bad in certain ways because it teaches you to repay evil not with good, but with more evil. It teaches you that just because the system oppresses you, it means that you don't have to obey it. It teaches you that if you're working for someone corrupt, you can engage in money laundering for that person. If... The, the chips are down and you really, really, really need, it's really, really, really convenient and good for you to sin, then you can sin and it's okay. And not only is it okay, it's triumphant that when God puts you in a situation where authority is oppressing you, it is automatically righteous for you to throw off that authority, to escape from prison, to not submit even to evil authorities as we are called to do, submit with fear and trembling, to your earthly masters, says Paul. There's all kinds of verses about submitting to the government. And you could maybe make a case. There's a time to throw off, giving myself a little extra time here. I'll give Jake some extra time as well. You can maybe make a case that there are times to rebel or to not obey wicked authority. But the shot, but Shawshank just simply takes that for granted and lets Andy off the hook for all kinds of things that are, or, or tell, doesn't just let him off the hook, tells you that it is a triumphant, redemptive thing for Andy to do all kinds of things that are morally gray at best, obviously pretty bad at worst. So... There's my argument. I had gave myself 90 seconds. I will do the same for you, Jake. Are you ready? I think so. All right. 
Uh, one, two, three, go. Let's do a little thought experiment. Uh, experiment. Let's take this exact movie. Let's change one detail. Let's set it in Nazi Germany. The fact is, you can argue that the midwives were wrong to tell lies to Pharaoh. You can argue all kinds of things like that. But what you have is a man in a corrupt system. Everybody around him is being oppressed. People are being killed. People are being tortured. And he does everything in his power to protect the people who are around him and to protect himself against the corruption of the system and to bring justice within that corrupt system. So he's an innocent man. He uses every power at his disposal to protect people around him from being unfairly treated, from being, from being tortured, from being raped, from being murdered. And then he makes sure that in the end, uh, the wickedness of those in power, the oppressors, are, are all exposed. And so Andy is within a very difficult situation doing his best to protect the weak and the innocent and to vindicate himself and to bring down the wicked oppressors. And so to, to say that Andy... Uh, this is just giving license for Andy to do wicked things is like saying, well, uh, you know, the midwives, you know, where Bible gives the, the midwives license to lie uh, when Pharaoh commands them to kill the baby boys. Or that it's it would have been wrong in Nazi Germany to hide. It would have been wrong in Nazi Germany to hide or protect uh, Jews or those who were being sent off to concentration camps or those within the concentration camps themselves. Fair enough. Ben, your thought? Uh, I think it's think it's pretty hard to say. Well, can I make one more point? Yes. Take those arguments and step back and remember that we're talking about what essentially amounts to a fairy tale or a fable. Yes, I, I think that's actually the important point. And I think yeah. given that, I'm willing to go with you completely on your arguments. I think the the move basically what you have is a story that stacks the deck in, in a way that the deck would never be stacked in real life, short of Nazi Germany. Real life... These kinds of decisions are more complicated. We don't want to just give license to people like Andy to do what Andy did. The guard and the warden are not going to be as clear-cut evil, you know, 99 times. The movie makes it simple. And if you take from that the lesson that life is always that simple and that anytime you feel like you're oppressed, you can just do what you want, that's a bad lesson. But Mm -hmm. given the fable-like constraints of the story, it does make sense. It's a tall tale, and it's a tall tale of hope under oppression and evil. And it's a good one and an inspiring one even. That's my take. So I guess I'm ruling for Team Jake. I think that's fine. I could accept that. I'm not sure that I buy all my arguments, but... Well, I think once you once you say it's a fable, then you... Because some of your arguments apply to real-world situations, and that's that's harder, like Nathan said. But when you, as soon as you push it to fable, then you can make... What you're essentially making is arguments about how you should tell a fable. I think we have to be careful because the Popcorn Coalition would make all of these arguments, and they would tell you that the movie is 100% good, and that they would just blithely accept that it's a beautiful, inspiring story and that a man in Andy's position, of course, should do what Andy does. And that's not the case. You have to trust God. God, Yeah, yeah, God does tell us. I think everything I said was absolutely true. A man, nine times out of 10, a man in in Andy's, you know, I don't know, nine times out of 10, that's a dumb ratio to give. But generally speaking, we should be submitting to authority, even wicked authority, as long as it's not telling us directly to sin. I don't know. Um, you have to real. You have to look at the movie. You have to realize the movie stacking the deck. You can enjoy the movie on the level that it stacks the deck, as long as you know that's what it's doing. But it's kind of a fairy tale. I mean, Nick, Jake saying Nazi Germany actually is pretty clarifying because the movie is making it like Nazi Germany. It's yeah. setting it up yeah. with a Hitler-like villain and his Gestapo henchmen. And it's like, okay, of course it's good for Andy to do. Well, it probably wouldn't have been like that in a prison in the 1950s. Not that clean. Yeah. Not that easy. Yep. Agreed. Generally speaking, when godly Christians have decided to throw off the constraints of government or authority, they've done it in conjunction with other godly Christians. And it hasn't just been one hero like... No Andy Batman. Du- yeah, no Batman. <laughs> Hasn't just been Andy Dufresne deciding he's going to single-handedly solve the problems of the world. And if you think you're going to single-handedly solve the problems of the world... You wrong. You wrong. Good death matches, guys. What else is there to say about the movie? Some content that is unpleasant. Yeah. Things you probably don't want to show your kids. Yeah, I saw it pretty young. And I don't know whether it went out over my head or whether it was just like, oh, shoot, that's what they're doing. But yeah, for a movie that's kind of universally accepted as almost a family film as a just a beloved sort of inspiring classic it's the first third or whatever is pretty pretty gross yeah we got explicit prison rape Mm -hmm. and you've got uh, a lot of language yep those would be the two main factors not not explicit in that they show on screen 
not explicit in that they show it on screen, but, but you know it's happening. It, it is happening. Yeah. So I guess I should have said implicit, right? But explicitly talked about. Well, yeah, mm-hmm. and even just having to put up with scenes of those guys beating him up and beating knowing what's up. about to happen is getting unpleasant. awfully close. Yeah, you will see the lead up to certain things, and even that's it's suggestive enough to be uh, bad. Mm-hmm. Yep. I don't know what else to talk about about this movie. It's just a good movie. Yeah. Oh, guess what? I don't want to go all popcorn coalition on you here, but we do want stories that talk to us about hope in impossible, horrible, degrading situations. And it feels sort of Job-ish in that sense. Andy Dufresne. Joseph-ish. Joseph-ish, sure. Mm. Yeah, Andy Dufresne starts out good, uh, starts out okay. Well, I guess pre-movie, he's doing well. He's brought down low. He's He's raped and beaten and treated horribly and uh, suffers for, is it 20 years, 30 years? I'm trying to remember now. I think it's 20. Okay, it's 20, 20 years in this prison, and then he, and then he escapes. And f- watching it as Christian, I, I wondered, actually, would I trust God in a situation like that? And is that how I live my life now? Is that how I think of my life? God, you do what you want, and I trust you, and I know that you will bring me out and you will redeem me. That, that can sound really cheesy, but this movie is visceral enough and pulls you in enough to make you feel like, eh, what would I do? How would I act? What would, it, would it, what would it even mean for me to have hope? Like if I was a Christian in um, North Korea, a, a prisoner of the state for Christ. Well, anyway, it can provoke some serious thought because it's a good enough movie to, to, to pull you into the story. Yeah, I agree. And I, I feel the same wariness of talking about saying any of those things because I don't want to sound like the Popcorn Coalition talking about yeah. all the redemptive themes in the movie. But they are there. It is the reason why everybody loves the movie. And it is a really, really effective, one of cinema's maybe most effective fables i often think as i've alluded to already of it's a wonderful life in the same breath with this movie this movie obviously has some rougher content than it's a wonderful life but they're similar in my mind at least and that they're just these really simple fables about you know what would the world be like george if you weren't here you maybe it's just the simple things that you do that help people out and that make life worth it sort of operates on that level you got to get live busy living or get busy dying you know it's not any more profound than that but that in and of itself is pretty profound and it's a moving meditation on hope in the midst of oppression. So yeah, I agree. I guess the only other thing I want to say is this is a really, the other maybe way that this reminds me of an old Frank Capra movie or of something along those lines is that it's just a really well-crafted, well-written movie with setups and payoffs this character's like this, and that's this is going to lead to this. This person's doing this, and he knows about taxes. Now it's going to do this, and there's just all these things that are kind of laid in, and just on a structural level, level, it's a clever and rewarding movie, and you just enjoy it as you're. Oh, now he's doing everyone's taxes. It's just got a lot of fun stuff like that. The storytelling really is really rich. Mm-hmm. If you think about some of the subplots, even the old man yeah. who's the librarian, who you know, Andy's going to be his assistant, then. Andy's going to build the library and then he's going to suddenly he's going to be let out. He's going to try to shank somebody because he needs to stay in. He's going to get out and he's not going to know what to do with himself. And then he's going to, that's a whole movie in itself. Yeah. And it's a poignant, the story of that guy is a whole movie in itself and it's told and it's told poignantly and it never distracts from, it only uh, adds to the actual story that's being told, which is the redemption of, of red. And it's a great setup for, to make you afraid for Andy when he's, looks like he might be suicide to have someone who actually committed suicide suddenly throws into sharp relief the fact that we're going to be afraid for andy and then later when red gets out and doesn't know what to do with himself we're going to feel that redemption in a different way because we've seen it not work out well he even stays in the same room as the old guy and carves his name up by him so yeah it's it's a very plain you know yeah it's the movie's not above just putting a button on things like that but that's old-fashioned hollywood filmmaking you can't be too down on it i don't think think it's worth being down on i think it's just smart hollywood filmmaking in my opinion i wish that people weren't weren't all in a wad about being too sophisticated to do things like that yeah Mm -hmm. just have red get up on that chair and we're all like oh no what's gonna happen then oh that's nice he didn't (laughs) kill himself that's good i'm happy yeah I should say another famous piece of trivia about this movie. Let me ask you this question, you guys, this question real quick, and then we'll be done. They, the studio, made Darabont add the last shot of them on the beach. Of them on the beach. Originally, it was going to end with Morgan Freeman in the bus. The narration says, "I have hope," or something like that. That's how it feels like it should. And end. it feels that feels because like the, the ending. But then they just said, "Come on, 
give just people give them the embrace on the beach. And they gave it to him, and the test audiences loved it and said thank you. Everybody said that was their favorite part of the movie was seeing them embrace on the beach. And Darabont's always kind of been like, I don't know if I should have done that. It's too Hollywood. It's too whatever. It's and I can think of movies where I definitely like. I hate, I hate, hate, hate the ending of. The Dark Knight Rises, where Alfred's looking around and then he sees Batman. It's like, no, just cut the one shot. Just have Alfred see something. It would be so much more poetic. Not that that movie's all that poetic to begin with, but that scene would have been that much less clunky if we didn't see the, for have definitive proof that Batman survived a nuclear holocaust or whatever it was that he survived. <laughs> but Shawshank made the choice to be obvious. What do you guys think? Right choice, wrong choice? Right choice. I could go either way. I mean, I just, I sparked this whole discussion just by, (laughs) so yeah, I'm going to stick with my guns and go right choice. I I go right choice. Yeah. I think it's, I don't know. It gets you, it tugs at your heartstrings. Do you want to, do you want to be artistic or do you want to be effective? Effective. It's effective. It's effective. Yeah. You want to, I mean, you've had to put up with three hours of these guys and their friendship and everything. You want to leave it ambiguous? I don't know. There's the reason to do it. In an ambiguous way, is if an ambiguous way is more emotional or more, more poetic or well, more something. but And there's a way to, I mean, you can. So what's the redemption? Is the redemption that Red finds hope? I think so. Or is the redemption that Red gets to live as a rich man on the beach with his buddy for the rest of his days? Well, I think the movie's then, like, we can, can have our can, cake and eat it too. Yeah, <laughs> the movie is, yeah. you, but you could argue that giving the beach scene undercuts that it's actually hope that is his redemption. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and there's a certain hoity-toity part of my brain that does want to argue, but then it's just like, you know what? It feels a lot more redemptive to see them hugging on the beach, so let's just go with our guts on this one, I guess. I don't know. Yeah, yeah, yeah I could have. I think I would have enjoyed either ending, but given that this ending is in place, I'd rather keep it than have the other. Yeah. There you go. People see the people see the Shawshank Redemption, Jake. It's a good movie. It is. It's a really good movie. I think people should see it. If you don't like prison stories, this movie's a little bit more of a fable, but you will have to put up with some prisony kind of stuff, including a whole rape subplot. So be aware of that. Should kids see this movie? Nope. 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 Easy answer there. It's rated R for very good reason. Yep. Yeah. Basically, if, if anyone actually hasn't seen this movie, they should see this movie. And they, hey, Ollie, Ollie, can we uh, can we go ahead and get the tab, please? Certainly, sir. Uh, here you go. Nah, right, Ten dollars even. And this. Oh, and uh, Pastor Mensel, like yeah. I said earlier, I thought I might uh, overcharge you for those Swedish fish to the theater. I did some little calculations, and I, I found out I did. I'm really sorry about that. So yeah. thank you. <laughs> Here's the difference. Uh, seven cents. Oh! <laughs> 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 I think we should just end it that way. Sound of Sanity. Yeah, why not? Sound of Sanity was engineered by Benjamin Sulzer, produced by people, uh, executive produced by Nathan, Jake, and like all fine Warhorn products, stay safe. (laughs) (laughs) Until next time. Until next time. Get busy living. Or get busy dying.